This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future Podcast. Our society is being rapidly reduced to a feudal state, a process now being exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions of small businesses are near extinction. Millions more are losing their jobs, and many others will be stuck in the status of propertyless serfs. The big winners have been the expert class of the clerisy, and most of all, the tech oligarchs, who benefit as people rely more on algorithms than human relationships. With this, around the world, the middle class is becoming more squeezed than ever. And it's having profound economic, social, and spiritual implications. Here on the show, we're having conversations with business, government, and citizen leaders like you to get to the core of these issues and explore how we can work together to form a better future than the one we're headed towards. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Soplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And we are delighted today to have the Reverend John McCullough with us. John is CEO of Church World Service, cwsglobal.org. And full disclosure, it has been my honor and privilege to have been a board member at CWS. John, welcome. Well, thank you, Marshall and Joel. It's good to be with you and to be with your listeners. uh, As uh, you said, I'm John McCullough, and I've had the privilege over the last uh, two decades of being the president and CEO of Church World Service, uh, which is a very historic uh, faith-based organization. It was founded in 1946 in response to uh, post-war recovery. Uh, and uh, at that time, it developed uh, key elements of, um, of uh, uh, helping to uh, uh, address the, the needs of uh, people who were seeking refuge. And so, uh, working on uh, refugee resettlement and immigration, working on uh, sustainable development, uh, public advocacy for those who were the most vulnerable, the most impacted uh, by the war itself, uh, as well as uh, disaster response. So uh, these basic elements uh, have been part and parcel of this organization uh, for now. Well, this we've just begun, entered into our 75th year uh, as an organization. Uh, and um uh, you know, someone once said, well, you know, what kind of an impact can the church have? You know, and the reality is, is that uh, through CWS alone, more than $2 billion worth of, uh, of uh, you know, development aid has been dispersed around the world. Uh, more than a million people have been resettled uh, all across the United States uh, as a result of this work. Uh, we responded to the largest uh, uh, disasters which have unfolded around the world. Uh, so people can have a tremendous amount of impact uh, as faith community, as well as in other types of organizations. Well, you know, um, speaking of disasters, you know, with COVID, it just seems as though everything has come together into one of the largest global humanitarian crises we've seen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really in our lifetime, since perhaps since World War II, when right. CWS started. CWS, CWS has always been a very grassroots organization, a lot of members and activism in the field. And I'm just wondering, as you look at COVID, what has been the impact of COVID on uh, faith-based and and humanitarian-based organizations like CWS? 
Well, I, you know, I'm glad that you you noted, you know, sort of the grassroots nature of the organization. So, I mean, it definitely is not a hierarchical kind of organization. It really is about people who are paying attention to the realities that are unfolding around them uh, and seeking to understand how they can have an impact. And that's exactly how CWS was formulated. And that's been the fuel uh, that has kept this engine going for 75 years. And so the coronavirus is really essentially the same thing, you know, where here we have this uh, pandemic uh, that has emerged. And, you know, CWS is a global organization for us, you know, it was not only recognizing uh, the advent of the of the uh, pandemic in the United States, but for us it was also recognizing it uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, I think that's where we first uh, began to encounter it because we have significant presence in a wide variety of countries there. But then also in Eastern Europe, uh, we have presence there. In fact, um, uh, just just before uh, uh, the New York City uh, area hospitals uh, focused in on the pandemic, uh, I was. I had just traveled in Eastern Europe and I was in, in Italy and I, I, in fact, mm. I, left, I left Milan two days before the country shut down. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, um, so, you know, sort of the grassroots nature of, of, of pandemics, uh, I mean, the, of, of responsive pandemic is something that is very much uh, inherent in the life of, uh, or the DNA of a, of a CWS. And so we have found that, uh, you know, people, have very much rallied around this. You know, they've, they've, you know, have first sought to try to understand, well, what is this thing? You know, and, and obviously there's, there's, there's an enormous fear factor, you know, because it's a, it's like this enemy that none of us can, can identify. Where, where is it? How do you sort of put your hands on it? How do you, how do you determine where you can be or where you can't be, you know? Uh, but, um, you know, certainly our experience has been that, you know, people have rallied around it. They said, well, we can have a positive impact. And, you know, we can talk about some of the ways in which they've, they've tried to do that. Yeah, and I, I, go ahead, Joel. Yeah, I, I um, wrote an article for Quillette with a friend from South Africa. Mm-hmm. And he says that the impact in developing countries has been even more severe um, than it is, um, you know, partially because the medical systems aren't there. Governments are not necessarily uh, mm-hmm. even remotely effective. Um how do you operate in a crisis like this in countries where the governmental structures are are fairly dysfunctional? Well, you know, in, in, it's it's interesting. I mean, in one sense, you know, in in I mean, in a in a country that is less developed, people are less dependent, or they have um, uh, they don't have uh, expectations, you know, that the mm-hmm. government itself is going to resolve the crisis. Um, they they already sort of operate out of a sense of of uh, awareness, you know, that they have to take charge of their own personal lives. And so some of the simple things, like you know, in this country, we talked a lot about, um, you know, you have to maintain your social distance, you have to wash your hands, you have to, you know, all these different things that we talked about. Well, you know, in in a lot of the developing countries, you know, agencies like CWS already have a long history of working with local communities around health and sanitation, you know? And so there's a consciousness, you know, already about, you know, making sure that you attend to personal hygiene on an ongoing basis, you know? Uh, and, uh, uh, and you know, really um, uh, understanding that within your family unit or your community unit, you know, you need to be able to rely upon each other 
you know, that there's a sense of trust and confidence uh, in networking that you have to build uh, in order for that community or that family to be able to, to not only succeed, but most importantly, to survive, you know, so they're not looking for, you know, some kind of a federal system to come mm-hmm. in, you know, and solve the issue for them. They, they understand it in a more localized way. And, and I think that's, that's, there's a huge difference between that and from what happened in the U.S., in which we're still in the U.S. talking about the failure of the federal government <laughs> to be able to provide the, the resources and the services that are needed uh, and for, for us to get through this pandemic. The, are we finding within CWS that people are um, donating more? Are they or are they kind of diverted with their their donations to other things in the middle of this? Well, you know, that's uh, that's also kind of interesting because you know, one of the things that uh, that is sort of unique about uh, uh, CWS is that it, in many ways it is the, um, it, it sort of in, introduced the idea of community-based fundraising uh, to, to the United States. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, we, we have this um, uh, initiative, which we call the Crop Hunger Walks. And, and uh, going back into the... Uh, uh, mid uh, to late 1960s, uh, we introduced this uh, this uh, opportunity for people to walk and to be sponsored by their family members and their friends or whatever as a way of raising money uh, to address issues of hunger and poverty around the world. Uh, and um, and so it, it's always been predicated on a personal demonstration um, of of your commitment uh, to um, a situation that you're concerned about. Uh, and uh, so. When the pandemic hit uh, and the guidance was given to people to to uh, stay in the safety of their own homes, uh, obviously that created uh, for us at CWS and other agencies that have since followed the example of these community-based fundraising activities, you know, to have to rethink, well, what do we do? Because we can't tell people to gather, you know, outside mm-hmm. of uh, or on the grounds of Duke University, and let's have a rally, and then we're all walk together and and demonstrate how much we really care about uh, hunger uh, in North Carolina and around the world, kind of thing. You know, we you know, so so the challenge became one of asking people, you know, would you be willing to sort of look at a different way of doing that, uh, and where um, the emphasis really turned towards uh, a more virtual reality. Um, we found that our donors uh, easily gravitated to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so they, they found ways and means of talking to those same family members and friends and say, hey, I still have this commitment. You know, maybe, maybe I'll go out and walk just by myself, you know, but you tune in and, and sort of watch me or, you know, just recognize, or maybe I'm not going to go out and walk, but I'm, you know, I'm still going to dedicate, you know, you know, these minutes or these hours during a particular day. And if you continue to support me, that would be great. And we found that people actually did support. So, so they already had a vehicle to go online and with their donations anyway, and, and right. monitor the progress of the different walks. And so this is just, it just hadn't really changed that at all. I think it, I think uh, it's sort of interesting. I, I think a lot of, um, a lot of baby boomers who uh, had been a bit hesitant about, uh, you know, the technology and how do you really use it? Uh, found that now all of a sudden they had all this time on their hands at home uh, and uh, began to experiment with it and discovered it's not so bad after all. And, and uh, 
<laughs> it could be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> they let their fingers through their walking to their wallets. Exactly. Great. So, so you were able to basically not take a a hit, you know, because in the research we've done, mm-hmm. Jewish federations, many churches. I've talked to imams at the mosques because they depend a great deal on physical proximity to mm-hmm. help create the contributions. Um, that has not hurt you. Yeah, that's, you know, in terms of the crop hunger walks, um, you know, I would say that to a large extent, we pretty much have held our own. And and we recognize that that is not the norm, you know, that, you know, that is really uh, sort of an unusual set of circumstance, but it also speaks to the level of loyalty uh, that people may have for for this cause and, and working with this organization. But then, you know, Joel, if we if we look at it in the context of of people in the pews, that becomes a different scenario. So, you know, it's one thing for someone to say, you know, I'm going to do this walk and will you support me? It's another thing where people are accustomed to being gathered together, you know, in the pews of their house of worship. And that that becomes sort of the foundation for how, you know, they give expression to their philanthropy. Uh, and, And so the fact that I mean, Churchill Service is, um, is an organization that's related to, to 37 different um, religious organizations uh, around the, you know, primarily in the U.S., but also beyond the U.S. And so to the extent that people didn't have the opportunity to be sitting in the pews, you know, ultimately had a residual impact on us. Um, just as it would have an impact on the local pastor. I mean, I, you know, I would talk to my the pastor of the church where I attend and and, you know, we're looking together at the budget and we're acknowledging that, you know, if we're not making, you know, strong and 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 repeated asks, reminders to the members, you know, that their gifts are important, um, then we're not going to be top of mind uh, because 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 their mindset is I go to the place of worship. I participate in worship. There is that moment in which there is an expectation that I'm going to put something into the offering plate. Uh, and, and so when you sort of take that out of the mix, you know, then it isn't something that people think about, uh, you know, on a daily basis. You know, um, they've moved on. You know, even if even if they're tuning in on, you know, Sunday, they're looking at the worship service online. They're still not necessarily saying, OK, this moment I need to you know, send an online donation or I need to write out my check and put it in the mail or whatever, you know, so, and and if people don't do that in the local church um, or house of worship, then an organization like Churchill Service also uh, loses out on the benefit because that that is that local church as a community that decides a portion of what they're receiving is what they're contributing to an organization like Churchill Service. And we lose that, we lose that part. Let, I'd like to actually talk a little bit more about the cause itself and kind of reflect on on where we are in history. Over the last four years with the Trump administration, we've seen a focus, when it, especially when it comes to immigration policy and things like that, of really focusing on uh, America first, kind of an inward looking view. I know that CWS has been involved in relocating uh, immigrants once they get vetted by, you know, the various security people uh, coming into the U.S., but that dropped a lot under the Trump administration. Are you, what are you anticipating for the, um, 
changeover to the Biden administration? How do you think things will change? Well, yeah, I mean, in fact, there's been a significant uh, decrease in the number of people who have uh, who are either eligible or, or are approved uh, for resettlement in the United States. I mean, at the time that Mr. Obama was um, his last year of his administration, he uh, projected uh, that he was going to allow uh, about 110,000 people to be resettled. Uh, and uh, to where we are today, where the Trump administration uh, is really looking at, you know, maybe, uh, you know, between five and 10,000 if we're lucky. You know, so it's, it's a tremendous drop in terms of the numbers of people that uh, are eligible um, uh, for resettlement in the U.S. Uh, Mr. Biden has indicated uh, that he has and he uh, intends to significantly increase the numbers. In fact, to expand beyond the 110,000 uh, presidential determination that Mr. Obama spoke about. Uh, and uh, so that's very impressive. Uh, but you know, here's the re here's the reality. Uh, the the reality is is that the United States, uh, like uh, many other countries, if not in fact most other countries around the world, is deeply polarized. I mean, that's you know. So I mean, the you know the politics, you know, are very very clear uh, in this country. You know that you know there are certainly uh, significant numbers of people who believe that it's important to uh, to provide opportunities for for people, especially in the midst of um, of civil chaos or uh, economic crises or even climate change, to be able to have the option uh, to leave where they are and to get to a place uh, uh, where they can feel safe. Uh, and uh, so that's important to them. But then there are others who, who feel, um, you know, that, um, you know, there should be limitations uh, in terms of the numbers of people that are allowed to come in. Uh, and, uh, and those feelings uh, are very strong feelings. So I, I think Mr. Biden is going to have uh, a challenge on his hand. I mean, I, I certainly think the numbers uh, in the case of the U.S. resettlement uh, activity is going to increase, but I think it's going to be very gradual. I, I, I can't foresee that there would be so dramatic of an increase within the first or even the second year um, of, of his administration because you've got to work through the polarities. You've, I mean, in almost any social setting, I mean, even even sitting in a house of worship. I mean, you, you, you just know, you know, that, uh, you know, there are people who feel one way politically and there are people who feel the other way politically. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've been um, <clears throat> in this work long enough uh, to, to be able to recall times in which I could organize, you know, delegations of religious leaders uh, to take them to Washington or to other uh places of political leadership around the world uh, and engage um, uh, those leaders around matters of public policy. And, and, and those, those re religious leaders would be able to speak with confidence that they represented the embodiment of their denomination or their church body. Uh, and that changed, <laughs> you know? And so you don't see a lot of religious leaders going as delegations to the White House or other places any longer because the reality is that they don't have that luxury. You know, they know that as soon as they offer a perspective that there will be a significant backlash from people who are part of that denomination all the church life who simply do not share those views. One question I, I would have, John, is um, it would seem to me that COVID will make resettlement more difficult uh, given that developing countries from everything I'm seeing um, are not as likely to vaccinate as many of their people. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, it, will COVID be a problem, uh, even if uh, President Biden decides that he wants to increase uh, refugees? Won't people make the argument, well, we let more refugees in, they may spread the disease? I mean, historically, disease has been something that people get very worried about importing. Sure, sure. No, I, I, I mean, I think that's definitely going to be a factor. Uh, we don't know how long um, it's going to take for us to get to a place globally where uh, we have the level of confidence uh, that there is a standard of care that's fairly consistent from one country to the next. Um, I think it's going to take a long time uh, for that to happen. We can already see, you know, that just within this country alone, um, I mean, we're the, the level of performance in terms of getting the, the vac- vaccinations out uh, to people is uh, is very is is going to be a very long arduous uh, process, but I think there's there's another dimension to this, uh, and and it is that that I think globally, um, uh, I mean I you know while I you know, I mean in one sense you know we can sort of point to to the policies of the Trump administration, but we would be short sighted if we sort of just stopped at that place. I think the reality is that uh, there are many, many governments around the world that um, are no longer willing to sort of be the pass through, you know, uh, and so and so where, you know, we had for many, many years gone through a period of time in which if a person sought to flee from their country to another country of safety, they would go to the, a country of resort, first resort. That's where they would make their case. Um, that's where they would be screened, and that's where uh, their eligibility for resettlement to another country, to a third country, uh, would would be determined. Um, now, most people who flee their country, um, that when they get to that first country of resort, that is their only option. There is no other option for them other than to return home. Um, and so, and so now the host governments are going to have to reconcile well what does it mean that we have these people in our midst and for the most part you know they would they would choose to put them into into camps they would try to restrict their movements you know and so uh, but we know that that's not a long-term solution for anybody right i mean eventually you have to be able to live your life you can't live for 50 60 70 years inside a refugee camp you know uh, people need to be able to people need to be able to um to uh, find a place uh, to go home. They need to be able to educate uh, their children. They need to be able to become self-sufficient uh, and, uh, and so forth and so on. So, so the, the challenge is gonna be more of how does a host government uh, figure out the ways and means of enabling those folks who have come across their border and their poorest borders, just like the Southwest border of the US is, is really a porous border. How do you find the ways and means of integrating those people into your country, because really that's where they're going to be, you know. Well, and and John, just so our our listeners understand, we're not talking about just a couple of people here or there. That's right. What is the size of this community that's living in refugee camps worldwide? Right. So, I mean, you're you're talking about uh, you know tens of thousands of people, you know, that are in these camps. You know, I mean, I. You know, I've had experiences where some camps I've gone in, and you, you know, you, at first appearance, you'd, you'd say, wow, I mean, this is it's like a million people here, <laughs> you know, so massive numbers of people, you know, who flee from one situation because they they hear that, OK, this is the place where you can go, you know, in order to get out of harm's way. That's where they go, you know, and and um, and and they end up being restricted in, into those locations. 
Uh, and so, you know, these camps can be massive in terms of in terms of um, the numbers of people that are that are being held there, but without the resources um, that are necessary. I mean, they don't have adequate supplies of water. They don't have they don't have um, uh, the ability to produce a lot of food uh, to sustain themselves. They don't have health systems. They don't have, you know, so, um, so, you know, these are, these are locations that are, that are not desirable under any set of circumstances. Right. And, and collectively, the last data that I saw showed that there were about 67 million people living in these circumstances around the world. Does that sound accurate? Oh yeah, that's, 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 that's very accurate. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we're looking at sort of the reality of not only people who are who are in these circumstances because of civil conflict and because of economic crisis, but but increasingly we're looking at the numbers of people that are having to choose relocation because of climate change, uh, and um, and and with that within that theater alone, we're looking at um, the, the potential of about another hundred million people. You know, so it's it's a very very significant number of people that are facing the prospects of displacement and and obviously no one country you know i mean so i mean you you, you can't even have the discussion you know uh, about you know the us being a place where we say you know the the you know the the, the portals are open and, and and everybody come here nobody's interested in having 100 million people come to the united states I and mean, that's that's not even a conversation you know so you have to look at what's what is a realistic number but that number is is always minuscule. I mean, less than one percent, you know, of people who are in refugee camps end up being resettled to a third country. Um, so, so I think the challenge for us as a global community um, is to devise uh, new strategies and and policies and and um, and look at how we amass the kind of resources that enable. Uh, those countries of first resort uh, to develop the capacity to care for for people within their setting and to effectively integrate them into their societies because that's where those people are going to be. Right. You know what I'd like to to wrap up with is kind of continuing on continuing on this notion uh, to to be able to tackle a problem of moral dimension like the problems we've just been talking about with displaced mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm requires people thinking outside of themselves, outside of their, you know, uh, uh, personal needs. And we've, we've devolved, it seems, and this is my own opinion on it, but it seems like we've devolved into this kind of collective narcissism that I want to get my own, right? I don't really care about anybody else. This is at least in the United States. What do we have a hope of solving that problem? And is is our religious institutions or faith based institutions like CWS a ticket to make that happen? Well, I mean, I think fundamentally, um, what religious community does is it calls people into connection with one another. I mean, you know, religion is not is not predicated really on the on the self it's it's always about a a person in relationship uh to others uh and and so that's sort of an inherent strength you know that religious communities bring especially um 
you know, in the, in the context of, of a country like the United States, where our freedom, uh, you know, religious freedom has been uh, such um, uh, an important value. Uh, but um, so, you know, and then when you have organizations and a lot of your humanitarian organizations like CWS really sort of grow out of the life of faith communities. So I think that's that's also true. If, I mean, maybe it might be a little bit of an overstatement, but I don't think so. You know, that a lot of your institutions of higher education and learning also have grown out of the context of, of faith community. You know, they may not be, you know, officially related today, but if you sort of, you know, trace back their history, you'll find, you know, that it was through the, the um, intentional uh, activities of faith community that valued learning, you know, and created uh, the framework uh, for that to, for that opportunity to, to be afforded to people who, who most needed it. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, so I think that um, an organization like CWS uh, uh, is, I mean, is inherently committed uh, to, to always look for the ways and means uh, for us to think through very complicated problems uh, and to try to find solutions that work for the good of the whole and not just for some. And so, you know, I see an organization, um, a humanitarian organization uh, working uh, with governments to help them think through, okay, what's the complex problem that we're facing? You know, and, uh, you know, sort of acknowledging, okay, these are the these are the ways and means in which you may have tried to tackle these problems in the past, but now given sort of the changed the changed reality, you know what are some of the other kinds of things that we could potentially do, you know that would really sort of help to move us forward, uh, and um, and how could we potentially uh, pool our resources in ways that are different and yet more effective than we have done in the past. So, you know, I would find myself at times saying as, as a case in point, if a country like the United States decided that it didn't want uh, to be open, you know, for people to be resettled here, it doesn't necessarily mean that government is opposed to the idea of people having a safe place to call home. So the, the so so how do you then have a different conversation with that government that where you're not trying to force them to do something that they don't want to do, but you're looking to them to say, okay, you know, you have all these people that have landed in Jordan, and Jordan, you know, the government of Jordan is being overrun because they don't have the financial resources to care for all these people who have now come into their have crossed, you know, into this. Their this is mostly Syria, right, coming from Syria. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. So. Is there a way that the United States government, as a case in point, could provide additional resource to the government of Jordan that would help them to effectively um, resettle people within their national boundaries, you know, so that they they would have the opportunity to become uh, effective um, uh, citizens uh, within that within the country and, and have the kind of quality of life that really we would hope everybody would have. You know, so you, I, th I think there are there are opportunities to sort of, and I think organizations like CWS can help help lead the way um, for governments to rethink what it means uh, to care for the most vulnerable uh, that are within um, their area of uh, of jurisdiction. I, I just like to end up on this that you know. Um... 
in in the work that uh, I've been doing and and looking at history, religious organizations have played a unique role. Christianity, in particular, grew in part because it offered solace and also aid to people during the pestilence of the you know second, third, fourth centuries uh, A.D. Um, and yet, at the same time, modernity seems to be working against the uh, idea of church and the idea of religion. Um, do you think we're going to come out of COVID with a renewed um, sort of spirit of, you know, Christian and other religious uh, charity and, and and activism, or um, is the sort of you know what what uh, Marshall talked about the sort of narcissism um, is that going to reduce it. So, I mean, the long-term prognosis for religious organizations after COVID, um, short-term seems to be difficult. Do you see any hope in the long-term that this will be sort of something that will renew that commitment um, uh, as it did in the earlier days of the church? Yeah, I, I actually do. Um, I, I, I think I think that uh, um, uh, religion I, I think I think that what's going to happen is that it's going to be it's going to be reinvented. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I sort of look at the traditional uh, approaches to religion um, and, and I'm, you know, very much a sort of a, a very traditionalist. I mean, I grew up in in that kind of a family in, in which we knew what we were supposed to do and we always do it. And I'm still I mean, even though my, you know, you know, my local church is not having uh services in person i still write out my check every week and i find a way to get down to the church and put it in the mailbox i mean i'm, I'm very traditional in that sense but uh, but i also recognize that there's a new level of or a new type of spirituality you know that is not beholden you know to the formal church you know as 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 we have really sort of known it um over the last um you know, uh, certainly the last century, I would say. You know, so I, I think I think there's going to be a reinvention, uh, and um, and and so I, I, you know, I unfortunately I think a lot of the the buildings that uh, that exist are no longer going to be um, uh, utilized in ways that yeah. uh, that they were in the past, and I think people are going to discover or discern new ways of being gathered together as community. I think the values of of what faith represents, I think, will will hold, but I think that they'll reinvent how it gets done, uh, what, what it means for people to come together, how they express their spirituality, uh, how they express um, their sense of uh, care for the other, um, their um, uh, sense of uh, charity uh, and concern for others. I, I think all of that is going to change. So um, I'm, I'm not afraid of it. I'm, I'm actually excited about, you know, what that might look like. And, and, um, you know, I know, I mean, an organization like CWS has been part of what we call uh, sort of the ecumenical movement. And for quite some time, you know, I've been uh, saying, you know, I think we're in a new ecumenical moment, you know. Uh, and um, so, you know, um, you know, sort of the, the model of, of, of how churches would collaborate together in the past is not necessarily how it needs to be done into the future. And, and people are not wired that way. And, and uh and, and I think it's quite okay. I mean, if you really do believe, if you really do believe that there is a power greater uh, at work in the world than ourselves, uh, then you have to also allow for the possibility that power uh, foresees that there's another way of doing things uh, that could be uh, much more uh, uh, to the advantage um, of our growth and development um, as human beings. So 
Um, I, I'm excited about what the future holds. I, I think it, I think spirituality will continue to expand. It'll be very, very different. Uh, and uh, the, none of the studies that I've seen give any indication that people will be any less spiritual or religious uh, than they have in the past. I just think how it is expressed will be different. That's and I think it'll be okay. Well, John, that was great. Let's hope let's hope this comes to pass. <laughs> okay. I Thank you so much for spending time with us, John McCullough from from CWS. For those of you interested in learning more about CWS, the website is cwsglobal.org. And um, thank you again, John. And uh, we wish you the best. All right. Peace and the Lord be with you. Thank you. Thank you.